An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're truly honored to have as our guest Eva Howler. Eva is described by many as a philanthropist, social activist, and mentor. But really, Eva is a force of nature, or as I think of her, a force to improve nature. In nature, things tend towards entry. She's the antithesis of that, bringing intelligence, energy, humanity to bear on behalf of building a better world. Eva is a Holocaust survivor. Unfortunately, her brother did not survive. Then she witnessed the Soviet takeover of her native Budapest which she escaped by emigrating to Ecuador. By the age of 22, however, she was divorced with a baby. She moved to New York City. She lived by creating houses, and she thrived. She earned a master's degree in social work. She marched with Martin Luther King in Selma. Along with her late husband, she built Campaign Communications of America, an incredibly successful business, which popularized telemarketing in politics and business. Then, at the height of their success, they moved to Asia to work with UNICEF. That accelerated a life dedicated to improving the world. More recently, confronted by the COVID epidemic, she decided to use social media and technology to connect people electronically. The result? She runs one of the most intriguing and influential salons in America, connecting philanthropists, social activists, entrepreneurs, reporters, artists, filmmakers, financiers. It has become an international community of influential do-gooders seeking to fight poverty and injustice. And I say that without any trace of irony, but with a lot of admiration. Ava has served on the board of the New School for Social Research, the University of California, Santa Barbara, the News Literacy Project, Asia Initiatives, the Princess Charities, Free the Children, My Hero, the Rubin Museum, and Glasgow Caledonian University, and more. She's won more rewards than I can count. Here are two that stand out. She was the inaugural Ban Ki-moon Mentorship Award winner and is a Magnuson Fellow, along with economist Muhammad Yunus and former Irish President Barry Robinson. Clearly, today, Ava is accomplished and celebrated. I'm going to stop here. Otherwise, my introduction will take up the entire podcast. So welcome, Eva. I really love that person you described. Some of it is even exactly right, but the others you wove together so beautifully that I have this admiration for that person I don't really know. But thank you very much. And Well, well, uh, tell tell us about the person that you don't know. I mentioned some of your history, but I know I left out a huge amount. What influenced you and helped you become the person you are? Well, you know, when you look back on 92 and three-quarter years and you say to yourself, I'm still alive. How did this happen? It's sort of like 
I considered my greatest achievement is to be alive. Uh, now, I, I realize that that sort of like doesn't sound very impressive. One should be not impressed just by longevity, but I am. Nobody in my family lived very long, uh, not only because of Hitler and Stalin, but their life expectancy sort of like ended in their, when they were in their 60s. But you do more than mark the passage of time. You, you, you very much try to self-realize in every moment. So what, what makes you take up that challenge? If the question really is what makes me excited and activated right now, what's, what's the, the challenge that is right now facing me that I'm trying so hard to overcome? And I will. And it's probably not as hard as I think now. Because everything looks hard until you do it, and then you say, what's such a big deal? What's such a big deal? And this this has to do with a film, a documentary called Four Winters. And I am trying to make it known, appreciated, and learned from by as many people on this globe as humanly possible. The story is about partisans during World War II we spent four years in the forests of Ukraine, of Belarus, of Yugoslavia, and fought the Nazis and detonated trains and did a, as many acts of sabotage as was humanly possible by 25,000 Jewish boys and girls. And some of those girls were 16 or 17. Today, they would be about 100 years old, or 102. The number of survivors after the war was quite limited. But the number of survivors today, to my knowledge, is one. There's one man who is still alive to tell the story. But 10 years ago, Julia Mintz, a young filmmaker, decided to find out more about what happened to those 25,000 Jewish boys and girls. And she followed them up, and she found about 12 of those who were still alive and still around, from Buenos Aires to Brazil to all over the world, but she tracked them down. Julia Mintz is a very persuasive person, and she did manage to get eight of them, men and women, in their 90s, to tell their tale. And she didn't interview them. She gave them the camera. And each of them spoke from the different places where they were located. And it's a magnificent film. The engine that runs me about the four winters is because it really is a monumental or an ode to or a, a memory to my brother John who was seven years older than I, and who started by the age of 16, 17, to print leaflets, giving the news from the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, and telling the world what is really happening in the not-Nazi-occupied countries. And every once in a while, I sneaked out of the house at night with him, because I loved him so, and I wanted to be part of what he was doing. And I was 12, 13, and 
it was the adventure of my life to be there with him. Unfortunately, he was caught and sentenced to death. And fortunately, my father had enough money and enough influence to after about eight or nine months of his languishing in solitary confinement to get him out. And the day he came out, he looked like a skeleton, his shaved head, and came home. He was very hungry, but couldn't eat all the food that he wanted to eat. His stomach wouldn't bend with. His first question was, could I please have my accordion? And his fingers were so stiff, he had a hard time playing his accordion. I took out my accordion because we both studied together. And uh, it was my most important, bittersweet memory of my brother John. And that he did become, he was in hard labor and he did manage to escape with four others to join Tito in the forests of Yugoslavia. And one night in a barn, they heard dog barking and shooting. And my brother said to the other four, go. There was a back door in the barn. And they escaped, and my brother was killed. And if there is an engine that moves my life, is when I think of John and think of what he would have made out of his life. And how can I honor that he would have become, that he was already as a kid. So that's the story that right now occupies me most to try to bring the film of the four winters to as many people as humanly possible, because they will all honor all those heroes who gave their lives. You yourself were about to be sent to the ghetto at one point. I believe your parents had sought to ensure your safety by putting you in a Scottish boarding school, meaning run by a, a Scots woman in well, Budapest. And when the Nazis came for you, how did you manage to get out of there? You know, Jane Heining has become a national hero. And because she knew that she was saving Jewish lives, she was the, the headmistress of a boarding school for fancy girls and sent over by the Scottish mission. I think that they had some hope that maybe they could convert some of the Hungarians, not necessarily Jews, just even Christians also to their religion. So she ran a beautiful school. And when the Nazis started rounding up uh, children and, and families, my parents uh, got me into be a living student at the Scottish school. It was lovely. And at that point, they even took in boys and they didn't care what age. Jane Heining wanted to save lives. And uh, one day she was taken by Gestapo because the cook's uh, son was stealing food from the kitchen of the Scottish mission and Jane Heining reprimanded him. And he knew where the Nazi headquarters was. He went there and denounced her. They took her to Auschwitz and she was killed. But when they came to get us, 
I had a little a ten year old boy whose mother was in hiding with my parents in a in a village not too far from the center of Budapest when they left us there and they they went into hiding with fake documents and left us at the Scottish mission and when they came to round us up to take us to the ghetto and onto the train, I just decided that number one I, I have to take care of the kid. And number two, I want to take care of my life. I just didn't think this was a good idea for me to be like sheep, like, like you know, they lined people up and they were standing there. And when it came to us, I looked at the young officer. I said, you're kidding. I'm much too young and much too beautiful to die. I'm not going with you. And he looked a bit astounded. I don't think he was more than 20 years old at most. And then he said, but then run. I started running and then I stopped. I said, oops, I forgot the kid. So I went back. I grabbed the kid from the line. I said, let's go. And we ran. And it was the beginning of December. It was very high banks of snow. And I remember it clearly because I got a frostbitten knee that I still own uh, from that trip. And where do we go? You know, <laughs> I didn't know where my parents were in hiding. They didn't tell us. I don't think they wanted to. They they didn't think that we should be burdened with that. Or maybe at the, that point they didn't know where exactly they would be. I don't know, but I didn't know where they were. So the only place we could go to is go back to our home, to our apartment building. And the only person I knew would be there who would be kind to us is my mother's best friend who was not Jewish. So we rang the doorbell, Maria, and she was quite shocked to see us. And we explained the situation and asked her if we could stay with her. It was getting to be by then the afternoon. We were hungry and we were exhausted and we didn't know. And I, I said, you know, I don't know where my, I figure you know where my mother is, where my parents are. And she said, you know, I can't keep you here. You know my husband is Jewish. I'm hiding my own husband. I can't let you stay. It was endangering his life. She made us a sandwich and gave us the address of where to find my parents. And we walked and we walked and we walked until we found the house. It was a low-level apartment house in, in a very poor section of, of the area. And we entered the courtyard and I didn't know where to look. Now what do I do? Which apartment? What, what do I do? And we were so fortunate because the woman who was hiding my parents came out for something and saw us and grabbed us and said, no, your mother is not under her name. She's not your mother because she'd been telling everybody that they came from a village and no, they didn't have any family left. And of course, they are not Jewish. And now suddenly a Jewish children arrive. It's one apartment next to another. I mean, there was no way to hide, nowhere to hide. And we did endanger their lives and ours. So I got, I got very sick, which was another quite a different story. But the air raids happened every night. And my late husband, many, many years later, showed me his diary. Murray Roman's diary from the war. He was a bombardier. And he wrote that he flew over Budapest every night around 7 
p.m. to disrupt the hunk's dinner. And when I read that out loud, I said to him, you know, you could have killed me. And he literally went pale. He said, oh, my God. I said, well, no, it wouldn't have mattered because you didn't know me. Bombing people is a very impersonal kind of a thing. So not to worry. Besides, I'm here. But the problem with the bombing was that we all had to go down to the basement. Elias, the little boy, the 10-year-old, and I were kids sitting there day and night in, in the cellar and not giving away ourselves, not coming, calling our parents mother and father, and not, what do you do all day? So we found a set of chess and started playing chess, not realizing that people in that neighborhood were not having chess-playing children. That wasn't exactly... We, we, we were different. And the rumor started that maybe we were not who we were. And uh, a couple of days later, the Soviets came in. This, the Soviets saved our lives, at which point they started raping everybody. So, uh, but they didn't kill people. How did you get to New York? After the war in 1945, it was clear that families, middle class, upper class families, children will not be admitted to university in Budapest. It was for families from the working class. So now I was discriminated against, not for my religion, not for my sex, but for the wealth we no longer had because we had nothing. And my parents felt that my, my brothers were dead my family was dead. We had no money. My father was an invalid by then. And so there was really not much hope for me. And my mother decided that that's not a good idea and decided to send me to Ecuador. I didn't want to go. And it was hard. And I couldn't get a job. At first I had to learn Spanish. And then I needed to get a job. I became secretary to the president of Bank of Ecuador because I spoke English. The reason I spoke English, by the way, because I always spoke English, is because I had a British nanny when I was a kid. And my English was something like Dickensian, like dead as a doormail kind of an English. But it helped me. I got the job. I didn't have shorthand, but I could welcome the visitors to the president of the bank. And I was married to an Ecuadorian nobility. My name was Eva Susana de Falco de Vaquero. It's a mouthful, but it sounded good. But it was not a good marriage because he got drunk often and he beat me up when he was drunk. I found that to be sort of uh, unemancipated. I, I, you know, I wasn't meant to be beaten. So my two-year-old son and I moved away to my aunt and uncle. And, uh, meanwhile, the other part of the family, my father's sister and her two kids, did get a visa, moved to the United States, and got fair jobs 
And so I asked them if they would send me a visa because there was very little future for my son and me in Ecuador. And I got a visa, a six weeks visitor's visa that did not include my son and my aunt in Ecuador and my uncle took in my child for me to just get there, find my way and send for my kid or come back and pick him up. And that move took six years. And I saw my kid when he was eight years old. And I was an illegal alien cleaning houses. I wasn't very good at it. I was fired from most jobs. I was not only fired from many of my jobs, but they never paid me when they fired me. So I realized that there must be a better way of doing it. So I started working in Canal Street in a jewelry store. That was nice. And those days they used to have automats. That was before your time. So that you could go to a restaurant and you put in two uh, quarters and you got a tuna sandwich out of it. So I, and it came in two halves. And I had half for lunch and half for dinner. It didn't give me enough money to have a room and even send some money to my mother to Budapest. And every once in a while, give to my son. So then I decided that there must be a better way. And I started to go to night school to Brooklyn College because my room was near there. And overnight, I became a success. So many years later. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to the success part, but I want to ask you to give me some advice. I read somewhere where you said that you were glad that the heroic part of your life happened early. That's because right. Because you weren't aware of the danger. And I'm not comparing anything to the Holocaust, the death of a sibling, being beaten by a husband, having to emigrate twice. Those are huge um, things that happen. But I have remarked through my life how many people self-limit. They don't think to themselves there must be a better way. They fear failure or they think they can't do it. Do you think having lived through what you did at an early age has enabled you to take the types of calculated risks that have helped you become who you are today? I'm an instinctual person. I'm not an intellectual. I, I, I'm a survivor, an instinctual survivor. And I just coined this this minute because I'm trying to answer your very deep, analytical, caring, and loving question. And so I'm trying to figure out what really happened. And what really, first of all, I live on instincts. And secondly, I'm a survivor. And I think that most people become trained survivors if they live in perilous places in perilous times. So it is sort of simple. It is something that becomes automatic to, to save yourself. But also consequences are an adult emotion. Because when you are young, you don't have consequences because you haven't had the experience that taught you consequences. That's one thing. The other thing is that when things are imposed on you, so many of the things that happened to me that were tragic or, or failure or terrible or whatever, were not self-imposed. 
you know, I couldn't help that I was born in Budapest. I couldn't help that I was a Jew. I couldn't help that I'm a woman. I can't help that I was born at a particular time of history. So I wasn't guilty of any of those things that were imposed on me. So therefore, as a survivor, I had to fight all those things that I was, it was imposed upon me. And so it, it's a muscle. It's not a brain. Survival is a muscle. I guess the brain helps it along to know which, which road to take for the survival. But it was an automatic response. If you ask me how a 14-year-old tells a Nazi, I'm not going to go with you because I, I don't deserve to die, is an unrehearsed part of, of, of survival. I still am a survivor. You don't get to be almost 93, but every, every part of your body inside has a memory of people, everybody even if they died of natural causes, died by the age of 65 or 70. So, you know, there, there's a marvelous mysteries of life. I think we all have survival instincts and survival muscles. But if you don't need to use it, it atrophies. My life has given me the unique privilege of having nothing but need for survival. And when I finally got to have the, the love of my life, the money that I never dreamt of, a position that became incredibly wonderful, it was again taken away. So I never had a chance in life to uh, relax those muscles. And somewhere deep down, I think I have this reserve thing called survivor. Sometimes I laugh about it, you know, when I, I, I'm in a crazy situation. And I say to myself, okay, now I could close this door and say, okay, it's done and not do it. But challenge is a survival instinct. And I highly, I think that if one day I could write a book, which I will never do, or one day when I would write my life story, which would bore me to death, therefore I will never do. But if I would do any of that, I would want to explore and encourage everybody to find their survivor muscles and use it even if they don't need it terribly, but just to have it in case they will need it, because we all do. You use your survivor muscles, though, not just to help yourself, but to help many other people. I went through that list of boards you're on, philanthropies you felt. I didn't mention the individuals you felt. And that is different than using your survivor muscles just to insulate oneself, right? In fact, the very first line of your Wikipedia biography is Eva Haller is a Hungarian-American philanthropist. And, and it's sort of reductive, but philanthropy has become a key part of your life. How does... The philanthropy fit with that survivor muscle. Is there a psychological reward to being charitable? Are you, I mean, why is that so important if, if, if it's about survival and only survival? You know, that question is very easy to answer because it, it always amuses me when I meet people who tell me, oh, I'm giving because uh, I need to help people. 
And I really don't believe that that's why people give. And I know that's not why I give. I give because it makes me feel good. It is me whom I'm giving to when I give. And so philanthropy is, is, is a self-indulgent activity. It is a power. You know what power you have when you feel that you change a human life, that you help somebody to become whom they want to be? I had a number of people in my life who made me, who gave me an opportunity. The, the, the woman, Mrs. Miriam MacDonald, who, who allowed me into the International House in New York and allowed me to live there when I was not a student, when I was not a graduate, when I was not any of the what I should have been in order to be admitted. There are a dozen people in my life to whom I owe my philanthropy. It's not, not me. It is the joy and having all this money. Who needs all this money? If not to, to get rid of it in a, such a way that you watch others bloom and blossom like I did because others who had made it possible for me. So I, I just get a high, you know, when, when I, I, I can write a check and say, okay, this is what this will do. What power? Philanthropy is not, not an, a, an altruistic activity. No way. We've mentioned a couple of times, but having gone into it, your life with Murray Rowan. Can you tell us about that and about the business you built? My, my supervisor, actually, from grad school, uh, I asked her, how do you meet a man? What do you do to, to have a date? And she said, go folk dancing or square dancing. I said, that's not me. Now, how else can I meet a man? And she said, well, I have a friend who is divorced, separated, whatever. But I already introduced him to four social workers, and he said he doesn't want to meet another one. And I said, well, don't tell him. And so the guy called me and said, uh, would you like to come with me tonight to the 92nd Street Y? But it's a lecture by Erich Fromm on love. And I said, well, I can't. I didn't see patient, but I lived in Jersey by then. But I can drive in and pick you up in front of the Y in my old Volkswagen. And he got into the car and I've changed. He decided at that moment that he's going to marry me. He told me later on, and I said, why? He said, you looked so scared. I just felt I needed to protect you. That's not my self-image, that people should see how scared I am. But he knew, and he protected me until he died. And he didn't have any money. I didn't have any money. But he had a dream, and he had past success. He said that it would be important to have a political business to, to help candidates, the right candidates, to do the right thing. So we wanted to create the, the company, and we called it Campaign Communications Institute, which then the letters made it sound like CIA. And so that didn't sound right because the letters of CIA were already taken by another organization that was even more important than ours. And it also would not encourage people to shop. So we decided to make it Campaign Communications Institute of America, Inc. And 
Mary created a catalog. You know, you are maybe too young to remember the Sears Roebuck catalog, but Murray decided that we ought to have a catalog like Sears Roebuck that offers services from rental card and credit card and balloons and badges and filmmaking and advertising and telephone, everything else that you can order from our catalog for your campaign. And our first customer was a guy named Joe Resnick, who was running for Senate in the United States from New York. And he lived at the Waldorf Towers and he was very rich. And he hired us and Murray said, would you go over and pick up the check from Joe so we can start working? And we live two blocks from the Waldorf. So I went over there to the towers. He gave me a check and I looked at it on my way down. It was for a hundred thousand dollars. And the last check that we were able to write was for 300 and it emptied out our bank account. So I skipped and I hopped all the way to the bank. And that's how business started. Let's skip forward to modern days. COVID comes, as you say, you're a social person, and you found a way to be social even in the midst of COVID with this salon series. And I've been honored to be one of the lesser known guests presenting others, but you've had Pulitzer Prize winners, national television correspondents. Nobel Prize. Nobel Prize winners. The man who invented NPR, documentary filmmakers, everything from global warming to Viktor Navalny, the famous critic of Vladimir Putin. You've had the author of Diet for a Small Planet and the host of NPR News Quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. What were you thinking when you created this salon series? And irrespective of what you were thinking when you created it, looking at it now that it has been running, for years. What do you think has been the most memorable or impactful things that have happened on it or because of it? Uh, let me answer the last question first, because that gives me the most pleasure. And by the way, you are not one of the less important ones. You are the most important. But what gives me the most pleasure of the 154 Saturdays that we were on so far is what happens afterwards the chemistry amongst listeners and speakers and the number of relationships that came from listeners and speakers to each other and even action that came out of it because people got to know each other, they liked the speaker and they wanted to get to know more about their activity or join their activity or whatever. So the greatest pleasure is the consequences of the lectures. The fact that it happened is, again, really underlines what I tell you who I am and why I am who I am. That but I'm an accidental tourist on this world. And uh, it was the first week of uh, lockdown in 2020, in beginning of March in, in California, and most of my friends were in New York or anywhere else but, but where I was. And I convened a dinner. I asked six of our closest friends to, let's get together, figure out what can one do in a lockdown. And 
Anyhow, eight of us got together and we talked and had an imaginary dinner together. And uh, we talked about communications and what, what does lockdown mean? And we couldn't quite figure it out. So we decided to meet the following Saturday evening again for our imaginary dinner. And then the eight of us were Sunday 12. And then we decided to have it again. And then it was 25. And then as it kept on happening, it sort of seemed that, oh, we having a salon. It was nobody's fault. It just happened. And then suddenly we had 1,200 names. Let's and finish with some short questions and then short answers. How do you relax? I don't. It's a short answer. Do you mm -hmm. listen to music? And if so, what type? I I really love Mozart. Probably the best for for relaxing music. I, I just love the playfulness of Mozart. But it's always I love chamber music very much. I love Ella Fitzgerald, and more than anybody else. Yeah, it's it's probably Bach, Mozart, and Ella Fitzgerald. Be my short answer. Are you reading something right now? I love what I'm reading. Thank you for asking. Anita Tottenberg wrote this magnificent book about her friendship with Supreme Court Justice. And it is so beautiful. It is so magnificent how the two of them had a 50-year friendship. And then the book continues about friendship and all other friendships. It's a gorgeous book. I think it came out not that long ago. It's beautiful. If you could be on vacation right now, and I say this knowing that you have traveled all over the world, where would it be? On a beach. I don't care where. Just give me a beach. Give me a warm ocean. That would be just lovely. Yeah, I would love to be healthy enough to travel. Now my husband is healthy enough because now with his new heart, he can do anything. But they don't know how to give me a new hip, so I don't quite see myself doing any of the travels that somehow I missed. Last question. If you could magically speak to everyone in the world and tell them one thing, what would it be? I, I think I would really want to figure out peace. You know, I, I watch Ukraine and the devastation of humans. It's the ability to to keep your ego out of whatever it is and try to communicate with each other. I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question. Ava, thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Ava Haller a lot of survival and despite the repeated claims of not being an intellectual, a lot of wisdom. Thank you, Eva. I thank you very much. And I'm going to go over to the hospital and visit with my husband. Sounds like a good idea. Thanks. Thank you. That was very lovely. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. 
Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukumnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.